to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. It's James Green with Alex Bullock. We are here live at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference, part of preparing for the unexpected. Our first guest today, I'm very excited. This morning's keynote speaker, Kevin Newman. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, you had an interesting speech today, Lessons from Disasters, Past, Present, and Future. Tell us what, uh, what led you to talk about that topic. Um, I think we've all been through um, probably the, the, you know, the biggest emergency of our lives in Ontario, the COVID yeah. uh, pandemic. And um, I think part of what motivated me was I, I haven't seen very many people do after action reports on it, lessons learned. And I think that there's a tremendous opportunity because, you know, millions of people had to be mobilized and moved and guided through um, a, a significant emergency. And some things worked, some things didn't. And um, the things that didn't worried me um, because, um, in, in my view, as a, as a journalist who's worked for four decades covering national and international news, uh, I think the, the opportunities for emergency preparedness and management are only going to get more common. Absolutely. And some of those things that didn't work, what are the, some things uh, that you saw maybe at the community level or yeah, the, you know, the city level, the family level, what were some of those things that troubled you? Um, I think the structure of the response through the public health agencies and the way that they were structured seemed to inform everything. So if there were 34 separate public health agencies in Ontario, which there were, yep. each one had its own website, each one had its own policies, each one had its own meetings, there was coordination you know, at, at, at the centre but the authority seemed to be driven down, which I suppose makes sense if you're dealing with fires and, and localized uh, challenges. But the challenges of the future, you know, pandemics, cyber attacks, uh, potentially, um, you know, uh, limited, hopefully, nuclear war, are the kinds of, 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 of emergencies that, um, in, in my view, I think, um, are not well served by over decentralization because what you had was you had you had one threat in all of Ontario and you had 34 independent agencies trying to handle it and so it became like a hunger games yeah you know it be, it, 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 it became like where can i get testing sudbury i've never been there let's drive to sudbury yeah. right and the same for vaccines right i can get you know i can get a vaccine if i'm you know which i was 60 um, here but if i cross this road i can't get it there and, and I think that undermined the public's confidence that someone had this under control. And I think it, 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 it helped um, people lose confidence that we are prepared for emergencies. Yeah, I think we certainly saw that in the United States when the vaccine was rolling out. Each state had uh, different supplies. Right. Each state had different. So if you were 70 in Florida, you could get it, but you had to be 75. Right, but in Ontario, which is like yeah. a state... You know, you had then 34 other jurisdictions. Yeah. And in emergency preparedness in Ontario, 
like, you know, Canada doesn't have its FEMA. Canada uh, uh, doesn't have an organization that controls it. So emergency preparedness in this jurisdiction is 10 localized areas, multiple municipalities, multiple tribal councils. All of them have their own emergency preparedness plan. But when there's a single emergency, um, I'm not sure it's purpose fit right now. Agreed. It certainly makes sense if you have a fire in one building, right. something hyper-local. Right. But to your point, as we're seeing these wider and wider incidents that cut across towns, cities, boroughs, states, yeah. there's, there's not a mechanism in place. No, and I, I think the lack of a FEMA in Canada and a, and a federal authority uh, is huge. Like There's nobody picking up the phone and going, you do this, you do this, you do this. Everybody in multiple municipalities is saying, who do we get to do this? And so that that has me worried. Yeah. So how do we change that? Because you get the federal government saying one thing, well, everyone, you know, we don't want to step on your toes. But then you get the people who own those toes are saying we want you to get involved. And yet they don't. Well, in my speech, I, I, I look to the war in Ukraine as an example, oddly enough. And the way that they have handled perhaps the worst emergency imaginable, which is an invasion by a hostile force. And the way they have done it is not worrying about that stuff. They have created a way of crowdsourcing information so that all citizens through various apps on their phones uh, are able to access the latest briefings, uh, the latest spin, um, the latest um, uh, understanding of where the air raid sirens are happening. So the, the uh, bureaucracies and organizations that are created to manage emergencies, in my view, can take a lesson from the way the Ukrainians have done. And all they're trying to manage is what civilians and volunteers are already doing. So when they have power outages, like they do right now, it's not the power utility sending out people to investigate. They have the ability to crowdsource information to say, here's where the problem is, this is the magnitude of the problem, and then they can uh, divert resources to it. Um, I think too often, we try to solve all the problems ourselves within our silo. And, and that is not what Ukraine is doing. And I think it's a big reason why they're being so effective at like, everyone goes, oh, the power's out in a major city. Oh, wait, it's back, you know? And, and the reason isn't, isn't because they're any better at fixing stuff. It's because they're better at the information management flow and aren't working, in my view, within information silos. It's kind of like getting rid of all the middle Right, middle tiers that want right, and and creating units that are responsible for reporting to the command structure. Hey, here's what people are seeing, as opposed to here's what we have determined ourselves. Now, I'm just curious. You you've reported on a lot of disasters, traveled around the world. Were there any disasters or situations that really impacted you personally? Well, I was at the San Francisco earthquake, which is a long time ago. Um, and that was, um, that was sort of my biggest um, disaster of that kind because an entire city was in the dark for over a week. Um, planes couldn't land. You didn't know which bridges, which roads were safe to travel on. So to be able to report in that kind of environment where, you know, you had to go out and collect the imagery in that era because there weren't cell phones to do it for you, um, that, that was an eye-opener. And, and um, it taught me, I guess, that, um, you have to be more self-reliant than you could possibly imagine in those kind of situations. And, and ever since then, I've been a, you know, 
my wife says I'm a bit of a catastrophist, but I, I, I also think, okay, where's the water supply? Do we have enough cans of food? You know, do I have enough to get through, you know, three or four weeks of whatever the world might throw to us that, that, we, that we don't know? So I, I think that, that changed me personally to being more proactive about my, you know, my personal preparedness. Do you think, do you think we all need to be a little bit more proactive? Oh. 100%. Instead of relying on somebody else or something. Else. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the American authorities are doing a little better job than the Canadian ones are in that, um, you know, um, the Department of Homeland Security has news conferences where they say, get ready. Yeah. You know, um, President Biden, in some cases, has called in the top 100 CEOs of companies and said, get your cyber shields up. So, yes, I think I think we do. I, I think, you know, um, in, in, in places in the states that are accustomed to frequent hurricanes and tornadoes, People are accustomed to that. In Canada, we're not. You know, uh, we, we get floods. We get occasional earthquakes. They're not as devastating. You know, snowstorms are our big thing. And, and, and people prepare for those with snow tires. But whether or not they are thinking that, you know, that cyber attack that, you know, brought down the satellite infrastructure of Ukraine could leach over into systems in North America, I don't, I don't think anybody's really thinking that way yet. Having to drive to another city to find out whether or not I can get a vaccine shot because of a government bureaucratic structure, um, then that will inform our reporting. Um, you know, I, I'm now retired, so I can be a little more pointed in my criticism, <laughs> and, and that's very freeing for me. Yes. But um, um, you know, I think I, I, I think I think all those things you mentioned are actually endemic to reporting, and I don't trust a reporter who says, you know, I'm unbiased because we're human beings. You can't possibly be. Exactly. How do you work around it? Um, you learn to recognize your own bias. Um, and um, <clears throat> and you, uh, you don't use the kind of language that is necessarily um, directly advocating something. Like, the government has to fix this is not what you want to hear a reporter saying. Right. What you want to hear a reporter saying is, here are some really bad problems. <laughs> and, you know, they might want to take a look at this, right? So it's, it's, it's in the way that you phrase it. Um, but you are always choosing what to sh shine your lens on. So in that sense, you, you, you are being biased. Uh, but um, that's why I think you have to be self-aware as much as you can be. I know you have a tight schedule. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Us, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for questions, guys. They're great. So that was Kevin Newman, uh, kind of a celebrity up here in Canada, that's for sure. Uh, he's been on a global national. He's been, uh, well, lots of news stuff, including ABC, uh, Good Morning America. Yeah. So it's really good to have him here. Um, you know we're live. You know we're live because <laughs> we had some technical difficulties. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. 
disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Hi, Chloe. How are you? Hello. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much great for joining us. Great to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. We, we saw you get into a conversation there, so we thought, okay, well, let's move to another topic, and when we see your conversation break. <laughs> and then I saw your head poke around. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, I'm always happy to talk to uh, board members of DRI Canada. So. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. You have to. I absolutely do have to. We're very happy to always support our oldest and uh, our oldest partner um, outside of the United States. So it's nice to be able to be here in Toronto to combine a visit to the conference with um, meetings with them. Well, what do you think of the conference so far? I've been enjoying because it. You, you, you are a big part of this yeah, absolutely. So, you know, DRI Canada is one of the organizing members, so I'm always happy to come and support their work here. And uh, I've enjoyed it. You know, it, it's uh, unique from the conferences that we have in the U.S. that I go to where there isn't this combination with emergency management. So, um, actually, we have people at the IAEM conference this same week in the U.S., but it's, it's totally separate from the business continuity. So, it's kind of nice to see them combined here. Um, although we have uh, signed a partnership agreement with IAEM most recently, so we're hoping to kind of improve on some of those uh, relationships in future. Chloe, why do you think in the United States the, the public and private sector conferences are separate? Mm. <laughs> well, I, I think that there's just kind of a break. I think some of it was um, around uh, the, the kind of 2008 period when uh, FEMA was putting out direction that companies should, should uh, you know, get certified against a standard. And a lot of them were concerned about the liability they associated with saying, well, we've audited against this standard and therefore we're prepared. And then if something happens, are they then liable for what they've disclosed when certifying against that standard? We were involved in a lot of conversations at that time with the, the private sector to try to say, to air their concerns. And I feel like at that point, there was sort of um, almost a little bit of a break between the two. I think that there has been some change with the 2017 hurricane season. After that, the, pub, the, the public sector, um, there, there was some legislation passed that enabled it so that FEMA resources could be allocated to preparation and preparedness and resilience building initiatives, not just to immediate emergency response. 
And so I think that represents a big change. And we've certainly seen that. For example, right now we're doing a large uh, statewide training with the state of Maryland because they're very interested in kind of improving this resilience at the state level and not just in the business continuity, but also in the cyber resilience side. Nice. It's interesting you just said state of Maryland. It's, does each state do something different? And is that a challenge for, for you, even if for, for DRI? Is that a, a challenge? Well, that's part of the challenge of the U.S. system, and it's also one of the beauties of the U.S. system, right? You have 50 different healthy democracies that can try out all kinds of ideas. That is certainly true within the U.S. I mean, I've had some conversations with, you know, the National Guard, for example, and, and they're saying, well, you know, yes, we have 50 different um, states, but we all have a call. And so, you know, we've heard about what you're doing with the state of Maryland. It's really great. And, and that's a great place to kind of let the other states know. So we're in conversation with other states as well. But it is one conversation at a time and then also a totally separate conversation with the federal government. So mm-hmm. we have all of those all the time. I wanted to ask you, obviously, I was at and of course you were at DRI's conference in Las Vegas in February. Uh, that was amazing. Thank you. We've seen you at other conferences this year. You're, you're in Toronto this week. What's been your perspective of going back to in-person events after COVID? Like, what have you seen that is now maybe either temporarily or permanently different? Well, I'm delighted. (laughs) And I would (laughs) describe the, the feeling in Las Vegas, which was a very, it was like really like the first show. And, uh, I would say that people were kind of giddy. Yes. Like just so happy to see each other because, with the virtual events, you can get a lot of the information, and that's great. And, you know, we certainly put out a lot of information. I would say we even put out more information than normal during COVID. Uh, business continuity in general has been a rather popular topic, not just within the industry, but more broadly. Um, so the information piece was, was there and was strong, but it's that connection. Yeah. You know, a lot of these teams are relatively small, and it's so vital to have those in-person, off-the-record you know, conversations around a lunch table or a breakfast table. And we saw a lot of those in Las Vegas. I, I particularly love this one where I saw a whole bunch of our veterans outreach programs, veteran scholarship winners. They just did a little circle up in the hallway and they had this impromptu mentoring session. And that's the kind of thing, it doesn't happen virtually. I mean, if you've ever tried to, you know, have those pre-meeting chats on Zoom. It's not the it's same. Not the same. <laughs> and it doesn't really work because somebody usually pops in halfway through and you have to stop what you're saying. Yes, exactly. With their microphone off mute and, yeah. you know, the ambulance goes by. Oh, that's usually me. I'm in New York. It's noisy. <laughs> now, that's been a big focus I've noticed with DRI. There were a lot of veterans, a lot of men and women who were at your conference who were getting ready to, you know, end their service or retire and were transitioning into the private sector and spent a lot of time with those men and women. That was fantastic. Like, how did that become kind of a, a priority or why is that important to you and to DRI? Sure. So we started up the foundation, which is a, a charitable institute as opposed to DRI International. It's also a nonprofit, but it's a mm-hmm. professional organization focused on certification and training. The foundation was about outreach. <clears throat> and one of the things that we had heard consistently was that there were not enough people to fill jobs in the business continuity community. And they were always looking for talent. And then at the same time, we had a lot of returning veterans that started in the U.S., so returning from Iraq, returning from Afghanistan, with really uh, great skill sets that map to what they would be doing in a business continuity job. They didn't necessarily know how to translate that. 
because, you know, the military uses an awful lot of acronyms. I mean, we do yeah. too, but you got to translate acronym yes. to acronym, right? So we were thinking we can definitely help with this. So we identified, a, you know, a, a committee of people who had successfully made that transition to help us put together a scholarship program. And our idea was that we would allow these veterans, if there was an open seat in class, we would give them a scholarship. They have, they have an application process. They come to the class, um, they take the exam, and they get their application all free. We cover that. We've done this to date for over a thousand veterans, wow. which has been That's really, great. really exciting. Yes, um, U.S., Canadian, also U.K. veterans. So, so it is an international initiative. And more recently, building on that, we actually do training on basis. So that's been really cool, where we actually go to the veterans where they are um, and help them as they're actively making that transition and, and kind of mentor them through that process of translating, you know, their experience. And then we try our best to, to keep up with them once they get a job and see how they're doing. And we just did a profile of a veteran scholarship winner who's uh, now at Walmart um, recently. Yeah, that's such an amazing program to me because one, you're helping people who've served their country transition to the private sector. And two, we've had conversations in our profession for years about how do we get people into our profession? Where do they come from? A lot of us just kind of fell into it. We were tapped on the shoulder and you have these people who've served in uh, the military who have skill sets that are very very similar to the private sector business continuity and resilience. Yeah, around the time when we were setting this up, I actually had an intern in the DRI office who was, I teach at NYU, he was one of my students in that program, and he was uh, um, retiring from active duty as well, and he got it immediately, right from the interview. You usually yeah. have to do a lot of explaining and a lot mm -hmm. of training. He was like, oh yeah, I know, and it was great, <laughs> and so I, I could really see it even in my office directly how that experience translates. So what other things is uh, DRI looking uh, at in the future? You know, any other ideas, initiatives that maybe are, are floating out there, like you'd like to branch out a little bit more? Or? Well, there's a lot of things going on uh, right now. So first of all, I just have to say that the cyber resilience training and certification is just growing at a, at a fast clip. So whether it's with us or in other ways, it's, I think, very important for business continuity professionals to be well-versed yeah. in cyber resilience issues. That's the future, and we just see that in the numbers. So cyber resilience is really, really big for us. The professional practices for business continuity management have just been revised. Okay. So we're in the process of redoing all of our core materials, all of our exams, our certification applications. That, that's good to know because I'm a D, uh, certification commissioner for DRI Canada. So that's good to know. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll have a lot of conversations about it tomorrow at the DRI Canada meeting. <laughs> so they've been totally revised and we're now starting that process of revising the course materials, which has been, been going great. It's really exciting and the last time they were revised in 20, was in 2017. And I think something happened in the last <laughs> something, something in the news, yeah. that might affect things. So we'll see a lot of changes. And I will tease that the biggest changes came to Professional Practice 5, which deals with incident response. So there's a lot coming. We will do a, a version of our short course again this year, which is called What's New in Business Continuity. And the idea of that is it's like a half-day class for people who've been certified a long time who just want to know kind of the changes. So that was very popular last time around. We'll do that again this year. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
And then also we've been doing some more research with uh, Harvard University's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. You may remember that we put out some uh, two white papers last year on COVID-19 lessons learned. Mm -hmm. And so we were thinking, okay, what's an area where we can really be of help that people kind of need some guidance in? And one of these areas that we've seen from a lot of our certified professionals and board members is that they've been very involved in the conversation around climate-related financial disclosure. So as companies are looking to put out more information about how, how climate change impacts their operations, the sustainability team has somehow found their way over to the business continuity people, and they're going, do you know how extreme weather impacts our operations? And the business continuity team usually goes, yeah, how many decades do you want? <laughs> so a lot of these conversations are being had, but they're all kind of reinventing the wheel. So what we're going to do um, in partnership with Harvard is, is go to a number of uh, organizations and kind of figure out how they're doing it and then hopefully put out a white paper with some concrete ideas for where to start this conversation and, and kind of how to frame it. So stay tuned for that. There'll be a couple sessions at our conference next year and then um, some white papers to follow. Now, we've noticed the last two years you've been interviewed by a lot of national media outlets in the United States that maybe wouldn't have paid attention to our profession prior to COVID. Are you seeing or are you having more conversations or meeting with executives or non-VC professionals? And, and what are what are you discussing in those conversations? Yeah, so actually I spend a lot of my time uh, reaching out and advocating on behalf of the profession, talking to people outside of it. That's kind of what I see as my role primarily. And so a lot of it is with the media, but then a lot of what is not kind of doesn't find its way online is the conversation with C-suite executives. And I do a lot of speaking. I just did uh, um, a, a speech for a group of CFOs and treasury professionals, and they came to us and they wanted a briefing on business continuity because they see it as super, super important. Um, for CFOs to really get an understanding of business continuity. These are people that we want also to have an understanding. Absolutely. Yep, I will be having a conversation with um, a group of supply chain CEOs who work in, you know, shipping logistics, uh, transportation. They obviously have a great need for robust business continuity and understand the value of it. Because I think we've also had some supply chain issues over the last <laughs> few years. So yeah. they certainly see the value too. Um, so I, I do spend a lot of time talking to the C-suite and to boards. Um, I talked to some uh, various, um, I spoke at another conference. I was invited to sit on a panel, which was, a, this is an association for specifically board members of public companies. So it was a large number of board directors who sit on different public boards. And they all, again, wanted to know a lot more about this. So I would say that the, the value has been demonstrated and proven and, um, you know, I think it's just going to continue in that direction as people see it, not just as something that is a cost center or something that is a, a tick pocket box exercise, but something that is really a strategic value. Is that one of the biggest changes you've seen over the last few years? I've definitely <clears throat> seen an uptick in it. You know, like right away, March 2020, I'm starting to do interviews, webinars, all kinds of stuff. You would, you would probably be amazed at some of the inquiries that came in to us from organizations where you go, you really had nothing. Wait, but nothing, nothing, nothing. All right. <laughs> Let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can 
you know, um, find some people within the profession who can kind of help you out with that. Mm -hmm. Certainly we can. So we try to be a resource as much as we can and just make sure that people know that they can come to us and that we can serve as a platform for this whole profession and kind of point them to the resources that they need. And you're putting on conferences like this where you bring people together for that? Because you have, uh, I, I saw it this morning, it was either yesterday or today, you have a, a discussion too, don't you? Yeah, I was present? on a panel yesterday afternoon. It was yesterday afternoon. Obviously, you were there listening the whole time. You found we, tremendous value in it. We were in the booth. We were here. Well, I'm, I'm joking. joking. I'm joking. Yeah, what did, you, what, was the, what did you speak on yeah. yesterday? So we had a conversation in general about where the profession is going, what skills people need to be thinking about, you know, how they're engaging or not engaging with associations. Uh, we talked about the value of in-person because, you know, DRI, like I said, we're the platform for the profession, but we don't do that in-community, face-to-face networking. We can't. Mm-hmm. That's for the, the associations with chapters. And so we think that the work that they do is vital, and I really hope that people will start to go back to in-person that cadence has definitely been disrupted as people are working from home. It's much easier to like go to a lunch or go to a happy hour when you're already at the office and you stop by on your way home. But now if people are working from home, then they have to like, you know, put on pants and go to the professional <laughs> association events. So um, I think that new rhythm needs to be found because that in-person interaction is just vital in any profession. Yeah. I think we're very thankful that you're an advocate for the profession outside of the profession. It's one thing for us within the house to tell each other how important we are. But like you said, speaking in front of CFOs, speaking in front of executives, some of those higher level decision makers, it's important that we have advocacy with them. Yeah, I think so. Uh, So thank you very much for all that you're doing for us. It's my pleasure. Getting the message out and um, if people want more information on DRI, they just go to dri.drii.org. Um, you can find it on our website. LinkedIn is a great place for, for that as well. We put out as much as we can on social media as well. So we're doing our part. And we always want to hear from professionals about you know what they want more of, what we need to be uh, putting out, what would be useful. And I believe there is a LinkedIn group too. It's not just LinkedIn you know, post messages, but there's a LinkedIn group for DRI Canada, uh, DRI Canada and DRI. There is, and there's well. a special one for uh, master's professionals as well. They have their. Oh, there you go. And for our colleagues who are planning their calendars for next year, the DRI conference is in Austin. Yes, it is. Late February. Late February, February 26th to March 1st. Um, I've been wanting to take this conference to Austin for a long time. This hotel is brand new. They finally built one special fit for purpose for us. So we're really thrilled. Well, we look forward to it. Yes. Well, thank you both. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business owner, 1099 contractor, 
part-time employee, or volunteer who needs group health coverage you can actually afford? Do you know a nonprofit who would benefit from unlimited zero-cost funding? How about cost reduction, school safety, mental health wellness, and more? All these and more are fair game on Finding Certainty. If you want more certainty in your own life, you are not alone. Join us each Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Find your own brand of certainty and realize your personal American dream with Finding Certainty, hosted by Patrick Lang. Let's unwrap the certainty experience together. Say It Skillfully is my radio show about being who you are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. I'll help you find the right words to tackle any challenging conversation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. You'll learn how to achieve success on your terms and be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in your life. Check out sayitskillfully.com for practical resources, including my 90-second videos, real-life examples showing you how to speak up skillfully. I invite you to call in with your questions. Join me live every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. And no, I'm cheering for you. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Day two, hour three. And joining James and I today is Brock Howlichuk. Brock, welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, such uh, a pleasure to be back here seeing uh, familiar faces face-to-face in person. It feels like it's been a very long time. It is. Now, why don't you tell us what you do? Because sure, you and I kind of uh, work closely together on something. We do. I'm here as uh, a member of the board of directors and uh, currently the president for DRI Canada, uh, which uh, we know ourselves through the certification commission, mm-hmm. where uh, along with other volunteers, uh, we work to uh, not only review the certification applications from people who are advancing through their uh, their career and their profession and using DRI certification to do that, um, but uh, kind of in a bigger way, uh, advance, the pres- advance the profession uh, by sort of raising the bar and raising the standard and uh, maintaining something about certification that uh, other people can really look at and understand that it means something. So uh, I, I should add, as I, and I, I probably don't do it enough, is to thank you for your time as a volunteer. As, oh, as a not-for-profit, as a not-for-profit we depend upon that. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So yeah, Brock, for, for some of our audience who's not certified or doesn't have DRI certification. You talk about raising the bar for the profession. Maybe elaborate on why that's important to you and to DRI Canada. I'll, I'll and I, I say this having volunteered with DRI Canada for um, at this point over ten years, uh, and we do we provide training as a not for profit. Um, we we uh, run a, an awards program as a not for profit. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say this with a great deal of care because it's like the conversation where your kids ask who do you love the most. <laughs> but I'll, I'll make an argument that perhaps the most important thing we do is certification. 
because um, DRI Canada and DRI International certification, and remembering that we're uh, an affiliate of DRI International, mm -hmm. is uh, what sets us apart and what I feel is, is really important about both preserving and building is that somebody who has DRI Canada certification has shown to their peers that they have done and they can demonstrate having done this work. And so the question then is, what does that mean to our profession? How does maintaining the value and, and, and the quality of certification mean something to our profession? And I, I think an awfully big part of that has to do with the fact that we are unregulated. Uh, we are unlike lawyers, where if I were to turn on your mics and say, I'm a lawyer, I'd get in legal problems for that. Uh, because you have to... It would make for some great ratings. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and some <laughs> awful advice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're we're going to test the limits of your liability coverage today. Uh, but it, it, there's something defined when you say, I am a lawyer, I am a physician, I am an engineer. And, and we don't operate in that space. We operate in a space where, for better or for worse, at this point in time, uh, anybody can put up their hand and say I'm a continuity professional. And, um, and, and there is, in my view, um, a risk to our profession as a result of people operating in a way that leads to bad advice and leads to bad plans and leads organizations to places where you know, they are, in fact, set up to fail. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, having, having a certified professional, having a DRI Canada certified professional is not a guarantee of anything about what you're going to get from that person. But I think it's important for the credibility of our profession and the quality of the work we do that there are people who can go out and when, when others turn to them for advice, they can look at the letters and say, this tells me that that person has done certain things, that they've demonstrated certain things. And to me, that's really important because there's a public safety, there's a value to our work that has to do with public safety. When, when people develop bad or poorly informed or ineffective uh, continuity management programs and plans, um, it has really serious consequences. We are not quite in the category of a surgeon, which is part of the reason why we're not certified as, or, or pardon me, licensed as a professional. But people lose money, people lose jobs, critical services aren't delivered when continuity management isn't done well. So to me, and this is a very long answer, I apologize. Um, to, to me, part of what we, we do when we um, maintain and build a level of certification is it, it sort of elevates the whole field of practice. This is not to say that somebody without certification can't do the job well, and there are plenty of people who do. But it, it should, and, and something is gained when people can look at certification and say, okay, that, that, that means something, and that's what we're trying to do. What do you, let me ask a follow-up question there, if you don't mind, because you brought up licensing. There are certain industries... Uh, I'm thinking of like financial services where those are not life or death surgeon first responder decisions, but those are licenses issued by 
governments. What are your thoughts? Do you see, um, as more regulations are going to come out across the world post-COVID, do you see an, like an era where we could end up as a licensed profession? I, Interesting. I, yeah, I think I, I think I think that's probable. I let, let me put that differently. I think it's probable there's going to be a discussion on that, and and I I think that we should welcome it. Um, I, I want to jump back and like both to a point you made, but I'd made initially about, you know, what we do is important, but it's, you know, we're, we're, we're not surgeons. Um, and I think that there's like, there, there's a very old, and I think we've, I, I think for the most part, people don't think about continuity management like they did when I started 20 some years ago, which is something I hate to say. <laughs> but um, when I started with it, and I came to it from lights and sirens, civil disaster management. Okay. People at that point in time thought about continuity management as the, the, the plan that you have so your organization doesn't lose money. It had a very commercial point of view. Yes. And, you know, that's, yeah, I, I, I think, that. in large part because of its ITDR roots. Exactly. Yes. Um, and I, I think people have moved off of that. And if COVID didn't move them off of it, then I don't know what will. So, you know, it, it's my point is not to underplay the, the consequence and the gravity of doing this work well, nor to overplay it. But we saw in COVID that continuity management done properly has public safety effects. Absolutely. Um, and like we could spend a lot of time talking about examples of that. But, um, you know, the, the continuity plan that keeps people employed. The continuity plan that uh, keeps trucks rolling, the continuity plan that um, plans, I shouldn't say it's just one thing, um, the, the planning that leads to, to uh, Tylenol, children's Tylenol on the shelves, um, obviously go far, far beyond commerce. Correct. And, and I think, um, I, I really think that there's certainly over the last two decades a change in that recognition. I think coming out of COVID, there's... Um, you know, so many vivid illustrations of that. And, and I, I think that recognition kind of naturally, inevitably, and properly leads people to start to say, well, you know, maybe there is a reason to take a look at saying you, you can't call yourself a continuity management professional unless, and, and you know, like, you know, does it, does it put us uh, in the same category as a nurse I think it's, it's very tempting to say, no, we are not in the same category of nurse as a nurse. And I, I think we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Yeah. I, I don't think it's quite a cut and dried matter. Uh, but I think that there's probably um, um, a, a, a closer case and at least the start of a really interesting discussion about whether that's one of the directions we go next. Yeah. The reason I thought of the analogy of you know, financial advisors, investment advisors, is that's not a public safety issue, but it's a matter of public trust. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I think a lot of what we do in our profession goes back and is tied to public trust. I agree. And, mm -hmm. and, and I'll add to that. And I, I say add to it to sincerely not take away anything from your point, which I agree with entirely. Um, you know, like there, there's why, why, if, if we look at it and say, okay, part of the reason why uh, financial professionals are certified is because, you know, we, we need to establish for them that they have a fiduciary responsibility. 
And part of the reason we need to have them at a certain professional level is because if you get bad financial advice, um, you know, that's going to lead to real world consequences yeah. like, you know, and, and, you know, to, to not open up a can of worms, you know, people who got bad advice on things like uh, cyber or pardon me, crypto. Yeah. Uh, you know, those things have real life, real world consequences. And, and, you know, I, I, if we sort of imagine a continuum, uh, you know, we're at one end of that spectrum and regulated professions, you say, well, obviously a doctor, obviously lawyers, you know, and, and, you know, things that have to do with life safety, we're going to, for, for public policy and public security and confidence reasons, we're going to clearly and comfortably put on that side of it. And, you know, then you sort of slide further down it and you say, well, you know, and I say this in, uh, to sincerely not take anything away from people on the other end of that continuum. It's a slightly different case when you are, you know, as is the case in Manitoba, where I'm from, uh, you need to be licensed as a physiotherapist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's a public safety reason for that. There's a public confidence reason for that. I think, you know, continuity management has a, uh, as a field has a really interesting and necessary discussion to have about like, do we fall somewhere within that space? And I would argue that like more toward the side of like financial professions, uh, less toward the side of health professions, there's probably a space that we need to be considering. We talked with Chloe earlier on today, and she was talking about some of the things DRI International is uh, addressing, you know, updating professional practices and some of the things where she wants the, would like the organization to go as the acting president of DRI Canada, where do you want DRIC to go? And this is an interest of me being a certification yeah. commissioner too. Um, it, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll qualify it by saying I'm one voice on the board of directors. And um, uh, it's timely you ask the question because uh, tomorrow and um, the following day, board of directors is going to meet and we're going to be going through uh, uh, the next iteration of our uh, strategic plan. So we're, um, we're going to be asking questions of ourselves about uh, what it is that we're going to work on and advance as an organization for the benefit of really two perspectives. First, certified professionals who we represent, but also in a broader sense, uh, the public interest. Uh, and I think those two things are compatible. I don't think they're exclusive of each other. So um, to do that, you know, rather than just me saying, well, this is what I think. This is what, like, as somebody who does the work as a lay citizen, this is what I think is important. Um, we're going to inform our discussions by um, some work that we've engaged through a contractor who works in strategic planning and some engagement we did with our certified professionals earlier in the summer. Where we asked them, you as a professional and a member of BRI Canada, um, uh, what you think our priorities ought to be. Uh, because when we're thinking about our priorities and our investments for the next five years, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's important that we think about that not just to be deliberate, but to make sure we're making responsible, smart decisions about your money and, and your stake in the organization. Uh, so the first point is that we're going to be a little bit more informed than me saying, this is my feeling. But this is my feeling. Um, I think that um, 
the direction that the first thing we need to look at is what our members have told us as being really relevant for them and it can, can help them in their work. And uh, one of the things that you've told us, not well, you personally, members, uh, or maybe you did, is the interest in the need for more communications. And um, we're, we're gonna, I think that's safe to say we're going to do that. Um, and to not imply we've solved the problem, uh, we've, we've um, taken, I think, a big step in that direction with True North Resilience magazine. Uh, which if you're here in Toronto today, uh, you can pick up a coffee at our table. Uh, if you're not here at uh, Continuity Resilience today or DemCon, um, we'll be sending one out to you. Oh, good. Yep. I um, knew that was launching. That only just launched, didn't it? Yesterday or today? Uh, today. Or, or pardon me, yesterday. 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 Yeah. We're going to grab a copy at the next break then. Yep. So we'll have yep. to put an article in there. We'll have to write an article in there. 100%. 100%. Um, and... Uh, you're not the only people who've said that, and uh, I couldn't be happier. I'll pause, and as much as Garth Tucker, who's sitting over here, uh, would say it's a team effort, uh, <laughs> the biggest part of that team was Garth Tucker on our board of directors, who saw a need and had a vision and led the work, and uh, yes, a team effort, and uh, his work really stood out in it. The, the thing that, like, so that's a good step. But the thing that I think is, is really notable about that is the number of people who said what you said and what you said. Can I write something? Can I contribute something? And I think what that leads to then for me as the second point I really want to get to is finding ways to engage members. Mm. And, um, you know, but as a first point, uh, providing things that are relevant to people in their practice. As a second thing, finding ways to engage members. Um, the third thing, and I could make a longer list, but I'll keep it to three. The third thing is, I think, really finding ways to help people advance from ABCP, associate, mm -hmm. uh, the associate level, to CFCP or CBCP. Um, and I, I think that's a really important thing to go to, back to the start because it elevates our professions when we can get people to that level. Um, but... Uh, um, more importantly, people have said that there's the need. They want things to help them progress professionally. And as great as certification, and, and certification is important because, uh, and I'll, I'll labor the point, I apologize. Certification is important because it means something. Certification is also important because it's a, it's a roadmap for professional development. And uh, when, when, I guess, you know, this is another, that's another way to make the point that uh, there's a public interest that's served. And there's also a an interest on the part of our certified professionals. So I think that there's some, some, I'm, I'm don't have all the answers. And uh, for me, there's, there's some really important work that we can do about not just maintaining the level of certification and advancing it, but getting more people into the process. I'd really like to work on that. Well, that's something where I think we're going to be talking about uh, later anyway, is getting new people into the, the uh, profession and how to uh, collaborate with them and and then getting the certification for them so that they, as they come in, they can grow and, and get better in a profession of mentoring and, and different different ideas that they have. There, there's that, I agree with you. And and there's there's a big component of that. There's also a, 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 
a component of our certified professionals at ABCP who I objectively feel like we've underserved. And uh, those are the people who, and like there's nobody as I look out in the crowd today who comes to mind immediately, and I'll, I'll not name names, but I've, I've known some people who are at ABCP and are exemplary professionals who I've worked with and do the job as well as anybody. And they've stayed at ABCP for a long time. Uh, really, you know, it's only a matter of them saying, here's the, here's the certification application. Uh, you know, they'd hit it out of the park. Um, there's, there's the new professionals, I agree with you. I think that there's also a group of existing ABCPs who are all kinds of qualified. And we need to take a look at, uh, and, and a better look, and do a better job of figuring out what it is that we can do to get them into the process. Noting that there's some people who say that's good enough. Like, and I've asked some people who have been ABCP for like 15 years and I've worked with and they're pros and they say, and I say, so why, why have you not put in? And they've said, well, you know, like it's, uh, it's not required for my job or other, other reasons. You know, there, there are some people who will say it's just not something that I need. Um, but I think that there are other people who uh, we kind of have to look at what some of the impediments are yeah. and, and find a way to support them better. Any final thoughts? Any comments? Because I know you have a presentation. Hi, Brock. You've been up yeah. since two in the morning. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Thank I, you for joining us. Did you get any sleep last night? I had uh, I had about uh, two and a half hours of sleep, and uh, I set my alarm to go off at two a.m. in Winnipeg. Uh, well, I live just outside of Winnipeg, uh, so I could get to the airport, then get on a plane, and get here today. And um, uh, the hardest part, it, as great as it is to be here, and it, 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 I was looking forward to it. I, I didn't realize how much I missed this kind of setting and how much I missed face-to-face -face with people until I actually got here. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm regretting that it didn't work out for me to come yesterday, even more than I was regretting it. Um, so it's great to be here. The, the only part, the hardest part, is that my little dog is back home. And about half an hour before my <laughs> alarm went off, he's on the bed. He's like a 13-pound dog. Okay. And it was, oh, we got a COVID dog. We got a COVID dog, and uh, it's like, oh, he's not allowed on the bed. Well, he's on the bed. He's on the so bed. at about 1.30, he, he kind of pushed into me. I said, oh, now I really don't want to go. Alas, I'm really glad to be here. I I think you're being told you have to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brock. Oh, Actually, thank this you. is the first time we are meeting face, face to, to face. face. Yeah, another and, example of that. Yeah, yeah, and I'm into my fourth year of being a certification commissioner. Well, this has happened with a few of our commissions where we've had people who, and like this is, you know, part of what we need to bear in mind as a board of directors as we take our strategic direction. Uh, the nature of our work has changed, made more prominent. Um, but, but I think there's, there's also something about, um, uh, in particular continuity management and, uh, going back to the point about what we support, we can provide, uh, asking questions about, uh, how we can do events like this, um, which I, I, I couldn't be happier to be here. Um, but what it is that professionals working want to see and, you know, rather than necessarily saying, come to us, how can we come to you? 
and yeah. uh, it's an encouraging thing for me. Um, you know, not just uh, yourself as a volunteer with one of the commissions, but all of the volunteers on the board of directors. It's um, one of the best things I do to have the chance to work with volunteers uh, who not only understand, but back up their belief that we are best served by a not-for-profit working in this space and, uh, and back that up not only with their time, but their work. And, and I'll add, you know, a final point about how fortunate we are to have Chloe and uh, Chloe Demirovsky and Al Berman and everybody at DRI International backing us up in the same kind of way. Mm -hmm. uh, but what it positions us, uh, us to do, I think, is some really interesting and, and exciting and useful things over the next few years. Great. Well, Absolutely. thank you very much. I know you've got a session later. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate and, it. And uh, Renzo was here nice you as well. I know Renzo was standing here, and I'm sure he was probably one saying, of, One of Brock's oh, handlers. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Probably one of your so handlers. We'll let you get ready for your session. Hopefully, the next time we speak to you, you don't have to wake up at 2 o'clock. I, yeah. Let's make that the goal. All right. Okay. Okay. I appreciate the time, though. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brock. All it's right. good to actually meet you finally. Yes, you too. Face. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.